Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 69. Uh, this week, it is myself, Michael, with Mark, and we have a guest, Adrian Delio, who's going to talk to us about SBOM, Software Bill of Materials. Um, but before we get to Adrian, uh, let's take a little rap, lap around the news. I'll kick things off. I've got a few items I'd like to talk about. The first one is a colleague of mine, Andreas Walter, has uh, written a blog post, which is the summary of 2022 security investments in Azure SQL and SQL Server 2022. It's a nice, succinct list. Gives you a, kind of a quick overview of some of, the, some of the major changes that we've made in the SQL Server platform. Next one is in public preview. Uh, this is actually another one of Andreas's little little babies. Is uh, Microsoft Purview integration uh, when access policies for SQL Server 2022. This is actually really cool. Uh, you'll see over time that Microsoft will make more investments in Microsoft Purview, um, allowing you to set sort of global access policies and manage them in a sort of easier manner. Um, so it's nice to see this uh, as available now in SQL Server 2022. Still with a uh, database bent, uh, general availability, we now have encryption with customer managed keys for Azure database for PostgreSQL flexible server. You know, I think I mentioned this on numerous occasions. A lot of the big changes that you're going to see um, across all, all, so many Azure services is more support for customer managed keys, or uh, although I think we're probably getting to, to the end now, we're getting close. Use of AAD, uh, Azure Active Directory, for client authentication, as well as managed identities for client authentication, and also uh, more support for private endpoints. So it's great to see that Azure Database for PostgreSQL Flexible Server now has support for customer managed keys for encryption of data at rest. Also in GA is Azure Active Directory authentication for Azure Database for MySQL Flexible Server. Again, like, like I just mentioned, uh, it's these sort of big waves that we're seeing across uh, sort of across the board. Um, and obviously the database products are getting that love as well. So Azure AD or client authentication for Azure Database for MySQL. Still talking about MySQL Flexible Server, we now have, <laughs> again, uh, in general availability, Azure, Data Azure Database for MySQL Flexible Server now has data encryption with customer managed keys, just like PostgreSQL. Um, so again, as I've already mentioned, uh, great to see more and more products uh, giving customer support, customers control, I should say, um, over their keys. And the last one, which has got absolutely nothing whatsoever directly to do with database products, we now have in GA, um, application security groups now have support uh, within private endpoints. So when private endpoints first came out, um, it didn't have things like uh, user-defined routes and network security groups. Uh, well, now it, you know, actually I think probably, probably about a year ago now, that support was added. Well, now we've sort of followed up with the next level, which is application security groups. Um, application security groups are essentially an extension of network security groups. So again, it's really nice to see that private endpoints are getting uh, sort of more of these network defenses. And that is all I have. Uh, Mark, over to you. Yeah, so uh, in my world, a couple things um, of interest. First is that a couple of the architecture design session modules, uh, module one, the end-to-end -end architecture and module three are ready and uh, pretty much you know can be scheduled for delivery for folks that do have uh, unified uh, support. Um, so that's uh, that's that's been a big uh, area of effort for me personally. Um, getting these out there, they're somewhere in the 
240 to 270 slide range uh, for those two. So they are, um, they are not small, but uh, they cover the end to end view of security and principles and concepts and models and, you know, structured initiatives and how to deliver on those and reference plans on, on how to execute on modernizing your sock and patching and backup and, you know, some of the end to end stuff, you know, the, the identity and the other ones are going to be coming along with modules two and four and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, something you can check out the, the CISO workshop. That's sort of like our landing page for that right now. Um, and, you know, of course, the CISO workshop, um, videos themselves, about four hours of, uh, of, of, uh, recorded, uh, content is also there and available. Another thing I wanted to highlight, because this came up a, a few times on discussions on Twitter, I'm starting to, <laughs> to sound like some of the old school Microsoft people from 20 years ago, <clears throat> Michael. Like where I'm starting to cite the uh, immutable laws and uh, and the newer uh, laws of cybersecurity risk more and more. Um, so we're going to pop a link to those into the uh, show notes as well. You know, we still see a lot of people kind of asking the same sort of FAQs in a way um, and saying, oh my gosh, it's a compromise. No, you're already admin. Um, so it's not really a, a compromise if admin is already in the attacker's possession. And so that's that's a, another sort of piece there. And then uh, some like news news is uh, my next task is uh, to work on the Microsoft Cybersecurity Reference Architecture, or MCRA, as many people call it. Um, effectively, that's that's one of the things I'm going to be focusing focusing in on over the next few months. And so, if you've got feedback or requests, or you know, hey, we'd love to to see something covered, feel free to ping me on LinkedIn or Twitter or one of the socials. But um, yeah, we're also throwing the links for the uh, MCRA and the the videos for it uh, there as well. So that's uh, that's all I got this week. By the way, for anyone out there who's not seen any of Mark's presentations, they're a work of art. They're actually a magnum opus. I mean, they're just huge. <laughs> no, they're so much better than my slides. I mean, I'm actually, I don't know if this is a good thing or anything I, sh- anything I should be proud of, but my slides are like basically Times New Roman on white. You know, I mean, that's basically it. Um, <laughs> but yours are actually kind of elegant. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, they're incredibly dense as well. I mean, I mean, you definitely take the award for the most content per slide that I've ever seen, but it's, <laughs> but it's, but it's good stuff, you know? I mean, uh, so yeah, to anyone out there who's not seen Mark's work, you really should take a look at it. And I'm not just saying this to sort of pep him up a little bit. He doesn't need any more of that from me, but the, the work is just magnificent and it's, and it's so broad and it's so deep and it's so insightful and it's just, and it's practical as well. And that's one thing I love. I'm not, I'm not a fan of sort of theoretical security. I, I, I much rather prefer security that's you know been there done that learn mm-hmm. from other customers learn from ourselves learn from our own environment and then sort of codify that into you know into material so yeah i'd, I'd highly recommend um you know anyone take a look at those slides and the uh, um, and the accompanying material and as for your comments about the immutable laws i think you just called me old just then um is that right i got gray hair too my friend <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right so let's um switch to our guest this week so as I mentioned at the beginning, our guest this week is Adrian Diglio, who's here to talk to us about software bill of materials. So Adrian, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, we'd like to take a moment and just uh, give our listeners a brief background on who you are. Thanks for having me, Michael. Brief background on, on who I am. I lead the secure software supply chain team inside Microsoft. So I drive the central strategy for securing Microsoft's supply chain end-to-end. That's entirely focused on protecting the developer and protecting the developer's engineering system. Things like Azure DevOps and GitHub and, and the build system and release systems. 
as part of securing the supply chain, um, SBOMs have been a part of our overall strategy. And we've actually been involved in the SBOM space uh, since 2019. Uh, we were part of the CISQ, a Consortium for Information and Software Quality uh, SBOM initiative, where we were working on defining a new schema. And, uh, you know, we were there working on, on this uh, since 2019, which was actually two years prior to the U.S. Presidential Executive Order 14028 that, that was issued in, in 2021. The executive order is, is famous, of course, for mandating that SBOMs be provided for, for every piece of software uh, sold to federal agencies. So that uh, ensuring Microsoft's uh, adherence and conformance to the executive order requirements and, and preparing us to meet those requirements has been a, um, a large part of uh, my role here at Microsoft. Okay, so I got to ask the like super basic question. What is an SBOM? Physically, an SBOM is a single machine-readable file. So it's usually JSON or text or, or YAML. But it's, it's a point-in-time snapshot that describes the various files and components that make up a specific version of software. Um, the, the analogy that's usually drawn is that an SBOM is similar to an ingredients list on food packaging. So if you are allergic to something, you might want to be checking the ingredients list before you, you know, eat food, right? Mm. In the software world, we, we didn't have the same equivalent. And so SBOMs are now a way to provide transparency into, you know, the open source components that developers use that's, that's embedded inside the software that they build. Gotcha. So it sounds like it's a fairly foundational component. And it's not like it's a, a solution like, oh, I just bought an XGR and it popped out alerts. It's, it's like a, a foundational thing that other things would use. Correct. And while the concept of SBOMs has been around for some time, they are really picking up steam um, just recently. So I think the industry is still going through the crawl, walk, run motions of, of getting used to SBOMs and figuring out how to distribute them from producer to consumer and, and those sorts of things. We want to live in a world where we have SBOMs for every single piece of software and every version of it. Okay, so now I'm going to take a, a slightly snarky tone for just a moment. But I mean, that sounds like it's a lot of work. So why is it important? What are like the use cases and scenarios that sort of make this something I would want to invest in as a as an organization or as you know someone that's that's you know learning it or or what have you? So the uh, the benefits for a software producer. So so there's two sides of benefits. There's benefits for the producer and benefits for consumers of software. For the producer, uh, an SBOM provides you a baseline inventory of your dependencies that are, are deployed inside your application. So, so it kind of automatically captures your dependencies for you. And that's a fantastic thing for, for baselining. But the real benefit of SBOMs is the transparency that they provide to your customers. So, and transparency is an element of trust. 
So by providing an SBOM, you are you are building trust with your with your customer base. Um, additionally, the SBOM contains other metadata about the components that are listed inside of it, things like unique software identification values and um, and cryptographic hashes. So because not all software is digitally signed, there are scenarios where you may want to rely on the hashes contained in the SBOM to validate the integrity of the software. So it's another way to help um, improve the, the security of the, the integrity of the software, or at least uh, uh, enable customers to validate it. And then, of course, there's the compliance with regulatory requirements. Um, the executive order is not the only thing that uh, is asking vendors to produce SBOMs. There's uh, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, all new medical devices need to be able to uh, uh, submit an SBOM to the FDA uh, before they are reviewed and approved. And then uh, medical device manufacturers need to uh, submit the uh, SBOM to the healthcare organizations um, afterward. Uh, uh, furthermore, there's there's new uh, policy coming out of the the European Union um, UN Regulation Number One Five Five. While this policy does not directly uh, ask for something called an SBOM. It actually is concerning the the approval of vehicles and the vulnerabilities of the components inside those vehicles. And I've talked to a number of vehicle manufacturers already, and they all believe that an SBOM is the way to satisfy the requirements in that UN regulation number 155. So it's gaining steam and adoption. Um, Other countries around the world are watching closely to see how well this happens. And so we're starting to see more and more countries follow suit with requesting SBOMs because they want to understand their supply chain risk. They want to be able to answer the question, am I affected when the next log4j happens or spring for shell? And they they were never able to answer those questions before. And with SBOMs, they can. They can know if they're affected and what is affected. So there's... there's, uh, numerous benefits on the consumer side, especially uh, such as verifying that all the legal license compliance are are there as well, because the SBOM lists, you know, what sort of open source dependencies you have and their their license um, and their, their version number. And so these are all things that that um, enterprises out there want to be able to, to manage effectively according to their own policies. All right. So following on from, um, from Mark's comments and then your reply, you know, it's funny. I remember working with some customers, um, actually not, not too long ago, um, who had no idea how prevalent open SSL was in their environment. And there'd been a you know, nasty vulnerability and, um, yeah, they, it was, it was, you know, for some customers, you know, pretty catastrophic and almost impossible to understand what their posture was because they just didn't know when, where OpenSSL was being used. And don't get me wrong, it's not just OpenSSL, it's, you know, it's many other products. As you mentioned before, this actually does sound a lot like a nutritional label. I remember many years ago, there was an idea sort of thrown around 
about not an S-bomb, but a nutritional label for security engineering. In other words, what sort of engineering processes you went through and what sort of defenses do you put in the compiled and linked code? Um, so, for example, stat protections and you know, address-based layout randomization and uh, the use of no-execute, those kinds of things. I'm not sure if that ever went anywhere, but um, it's, a, it's a similar idea, but it's, but it's definitely not S-bomb. So just... I just want to reiterate one thing, uh, make sure I'm correct on this. So the big driver behind this is the executive order around supply chain. Is that right? That is correct. That's that's had the most uh, uh, push. Okay. And as early as June of this year, 2023, critical software will need to be able to prove they are executive order compliant. And by September, 2023, all other software sold to the federal government needs to be able to prove that they are executive order compliant. And it's it's at those uh, timelines that any federal agency will be able to request artifacts of conformance, including an SBOM. And so making them um, easily accessible is a goal of, of Microsoft's. Yeah. So you bring up that point. So, so what is Microsoft doing? So let's say I'm, I'm a product within Microsoft. I, I don't pick on, doesn't matter what the product is. What processes does that team have to go through and then what is the the results and where can people find that information internal at microsoft in in the uh, development workflow our team created the sbom generator that generates um spdx sboms that's a software package data exchange it's one of the uh, common sbom formats that's out there and it's also an iso standard which is why Microsoft chose to adopt SPDX. So we 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 created this tool that that outputted executive order compliant SBOMs, and we integrated it into everybody's build pipelines uh, across the company. That way, uh, these SBOMs are generated at every build uh, for all the production pipelines, and some teams have already started blazing the trail for including the SBOM in their uh, compiled bits. So for PowerShell version 7.2 and newer and all accompanying modules, when you go install PowerShell on your machine, the SBOM is actually written to to disk. The SBOM is included inside and that way it travels uh, with the bits. And that makes sense for, you know, binaries, but there's, there's other types of software like container images and uh, there's, you know, software as a service and, cl- and cloud services where uh, the consumer won't have access to the bits and won't be able to grab uh, the SBOM. And so those are, are, so there are different SBOM delivery choices based on what type of software we're, we're talking about. And, and we're working through that now. Just continue that PowerShell example. That's a good one. Um, so you're saying that the SBOM is actually like a resource in the binary. Uh, correct. Yeah. So when you install it, it's it's in the it's in the folder, the directory. So it is a is it a separate file? Is it actually in the binary? Um, it's, a, it's a separate file. Yes. Okay. And I assume that file is digitally signed, right? Uh, we are working on that now. Um, okay. So, so yeah, PowerShell was, was a bit of a, a, a trailblazer and, uh, because their, their customers were asking for it. So they, they went ahead and, 
created these the, the SBOM files and made them readily available. And I have a, a link that maybe we could we could provide in the in the notes of this session to share with everyone. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so I've installed PowerShell and there's a file in there that is the um, the SBOM information. Now what? Like, what do I do? So if I'm a, a federal agency or, or just, you know, a corporation who wants to understand what the you know, bill of materials looks like for a, for a component, now what? Does someone look at that? Is there tool, are there tools that you run that say, hey, this component's out of this, you know, this part of this component's out of date or something like that? How does that, how does that work? That's a great question. The, the other side of this coin, you know, like step one is, is we need vendors everywhere to be generating um, SBOMs and making them available uh, for cons- consumption. Step two is, you know, enterprises need to, um, or or IT shops need to have some sort of an SBOM management capability. There are new tools popping up um, all over the place that do that, where you can load in the SBOMs for your environment. And then these tools do vulnerability lookups of all of the open source components that are listed inside those SBOMs. So now consumers, not only do they know what components we're using, they can also look up and see if there's known vulnerabilities of these components. And so Microsoft has has done some interoperability testing with, with um, two of these vendors that make the, the such products. So one of them is called uh, SAG PM for, and the other one, is made by a company called Cybeats, and the product's called SBOM Studio. You know, both of them are great. Both of them allow you to, you know, import these SBOMs and do vulnerability lookups uh, accordingly. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, it's all very well having the <laughs> the bill of materials, but now what? Yeah, that's that's actually really really cool. That's um, that's good to see. So um, the other question is so. You know, are we seeing this adoption industry wide? Yeah, the the executive order is the main driving force for uh, the rollout of software bill of materials. Prior to the executive order, like the whole reason why software bill of materials was included in the executive order is because of the work that the FDA was doing, asking for a software bill of materials for medical devices. And when they were rolling out this new requirement, they were um, socializing that requirement with the industry for quite some time. And the NTIA, National Telecommunications and Information Agency, uh, got involved with the the medical device industry and did um, two proof of concepts to prove out that software bill of materials are, are viable and useful and that they can be um, you know, passed around and consumed with, you know, existing tools. And, and it's because of all that predecessor work that the uh, request for SBOMs was actually included in the executive order. I didn't know that. This is actually pretty cool. This is actually pretty cool. I mean, as long as people can get hold of the, the SBOMs. I mean, if I buy some software, how will I know where the SBOM is? Is do I or do I expect a file to pop up in the folder during installation, or can I get the S bomb before I even install the application? How does that kind of work? Because I'm, you know, that might that may sway my decision as to whether I deploy this thing. If I find that you know it's got twenty seven known critical vulnerabilities in the package, perhaps I'm not going to install it. Is that scenario possible, or is it really 
you know, are, are there defined processes around how to get the SBOM from any particular installation of a software package? You bring up an excellent point. Everybody does expect that people will want to review an SBOM before choosing or selecting um, a given piece of software. As such, the SBOM actually needs to be contained outside of the binary. It needs to be available separately so that it can be reviewed prior to acquisition of the software. This this kind of uh, brings up kind of like an interesting point of, of where the industry is as a whole. We, we want the SBOM to be included in, in the bits that get shipped to customers so that it always travels with the software. Uh, but we also need to make it available out of band. Microsoft is currently considering a ways where, where we would have like a repository of all of our SBOMs that you could search through and, and look through. There's been ideas brought up about uh, marketplaces and should they show the SBOM there prior to you choosing something from out of the marketplace. There's a lot of opportunities. And so there's a lot of cross-coordination on figuring out what is the best experience that we need to have for, for our customers to make SBOMs like a, a first-class citizen and, and you know, natively support it in, in our workflows. Yeah, thanks for that. I think, you know, just listening to all of this and um, knowing that the executive order, you know, it's you know, relatively a new, you know, relatively new event. Um, it's obvious that there's a, a lot of work going on here in the industry and it's great to see, you know, great to see Microsoft leading the way. So why don't we bring this thing to a close? So Adrian, one thing we always ask um, our guests is if you had just one thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? Yeah, I, I just want to share that the tool that Microsoft created to, to generate SBOMs is now open source. So you can go search for you know, the Microsoft SBOM tool on GitHub, and it is um, you know, a general purpose cross-platform, cross Windows, Linux, and Mac build time SBOM generator that you can run in your CI workflows, and it outputs SPDX SBOMs in, in JSON format. So anybody can freely go use that today and start generating SBOMs for your software. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm definitely going to take a look at it myself, uh, just out of interest more than more than anything else. But this is, uh, but yeah, just go start kicking the tires on it. Um, so Adrian, thank you so much for joining us this week. I know you're a busy guy. Um, this is an area that has certainly been of interest to me, um, even though my knowledge of it is relatively small, but. Certainly, <laughs> my knowledge of it now is a lot better than it was at the beginning of the podcast. So thank you very much. And to all our listeners out there, um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope you found this podcast uh, of use. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.